having experienced another career, I can imagine a lot of people, you know, get into this business or come out to Hollywood and they give themselves five years. And if they're miserable five years and they're like, okay, well, I could have done this. I could have done this. Well, I knew exactly what it was like to do the other thing. Right. 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 So as long as I still had the passion and loved directing and making art more than I love science, that was my answer. Right. And so mm-hmm. it was just a matter of, you know, I was tutoring to pay the bills and, and so was my husband. And, you know, it, it gets tricky. Right. Cause I had a baby before I made my first feature, which is something, you know, I was like, I got to make the feature first. I got to make the feature first, right? Right, right? And actually my biggest lesson was everything happened after I had a baby. I felt like it opened so much creativity. I, I think I was probably so blocked feeling like, oh, I got to get it done. I got to get it done instead of, mm. like you said, life happens. You're a better filmmaker. The more experiences, ups and downs you have, you bring that to your work. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. Visit www.petechapman.com to get your official director's chair wear, hoodies, hats, jackets, mugs, and other swag, and learn more about your host. All right. What's up, people? Welcome to episode 42 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. And I am underlining and enunciating that because I've recorded this intro already and said the wrong episode number because we've been doing a little bit of a three-card money and and, and re-coordinating and rearranging our episode release to keep the conversations kind of jumping from one side to another. So today, our star of the podcast is the director, Valerie Weiss, hailing from... Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, residing in LA, and that she's got a lot of a lot of great things to share with you. A really interesting journey because she's got a PhD in biophysics from Harvard University, a master's from Harvard Medical School, and she's also a graduate of the American Film Institute. So I will say I don't know many directors with that background in history, and we will dive into it. I do want to take a moment to thank everybody for the great response to episode 41 starring Jeff Bird. Y'all were feeling that conversation and I am very excited and uh, rewarded by that because that's kind of my, I don't know, that's kind of my idea of the pod at its best, right? People just sitting back and and people being me and the guest, the guest and I chatting about their journey, kind of going back and forth at it and really getting into whatever it is that we respectively do either behind or in front of these cameras. So I appreciate y'all enjoying that, commenting, sharing it. I will ask for folks to leave reviews on the Apple podcast page, you know, leave comments on that YouTube page because the engagement is awesome. Before we get into this interview, though, with Valerie Weiss, I have a couple mailbag questions to deal with. So here we go. The first one is from, and I will preface, I read them and I answer them <laughs> on the spot. So I hope I, 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 I am, I feel like that's, I don't know. I like that. I like the, 
dynamic of that being just a real Q&A and not like me sitting here and, and rehearsing an answer. So Alan Alfaro, my man, I know from, and from New York, he says, how's it going, Pete? Really love the podcast and book. It's been a great informative guide for me. Thanks for putting this stuff out. I have a question potentially for your next Q&A episode. When you're directing episodic, how do you separate your writer's mind from your director's mind throughout the process? Is there ever an internal battle, quote unquote, of sorts? Do you ever have notes or thoughts that you keep to yourself? I've only ever directed stuff that I've written, so curious to understand where those boundaries exist. Thank you again, prayer hands, word. So great question. I think, um, you know, the battle between, or how do you separate your writer's mind from your director's mind? I think that you really, it's like giving feedback on a script, right? You have to really try and understand what the writer is going for so you can provide feedback through the proper lens and filter. And I would say that when you're doing episodic work as a director, your first job is to fully understand what the show is trying to do. If you are working on a show with, you know, seasons behind it or episodes, you know, under its belt, then you can watch and understand exactly how they are trying to tell their story. You may have questions about things that you don't see, and maybe there's a way that that could be added to the show. And it, and it, might, not it might not exist for reasons that are not like biblical or, or rules. It's just like maybe they never shot anything like that. And, you know, you can pitch something, but it's really important that you understand what the show wants to be. So then when you come on as a director, you're only really there to make that show. And the unique perspective that you have, in my opinion, is to find ways that you can find yourself in that story and present different opportunities or different ways perhaps to tell the story that the show may have left behind or may not have considered. So that's on one hand. And then on the other hand, how can you take what the show does at its best and really make that thing sing? You know, so like if, if a basketball team's playbook is give and go basketball, like you're not going to come in there and be like, we're not doing give and go. How can you come in there and say, you know, I got a way that we can really take advantage of the defense here and, and go hard on the give and go, you know, incorporate a third player into it and, and do something special and different. So basketball reference always seems to be where I land, but I can't help it. Do I ever have notes or thoughts that I keep to myself? Hell yeah. You know, sometimes like, you know, the, a, a joke may not necessarily be funny to me, let's say in a comedy, but it's funny for the show. It's true to the characters. And you know, me having a note on that is a note that's kind of worthless. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think what's really important, though, is having like a North Star of understanding what you're doing on the show, because then I think you're able to be the best director that the show needs. You will never really find yourself educating a showrunner or a writer or an actor into something different about the show that they haven't considered fully. Because if that's happening, you're probably trying to make the wrong show. So thank you, Brother Allen, for the question. Appreciate you, man. And hope to see you soon, brother. Now, the other question is on my phone. I have to hop into my email account right here. This is from Carl Mickens. Hi, Pete. I'm a big listener to your podcast. 
Very informative stuff. And also, I appreciate your book, Transitions. Well, I appreciate you picking that book up. Thank you. Leave a review. I have a quick question. I have a cool idea that I would like to turn into a feature or series. I've done concept short films in the past, but this time I want to try doing a concept trailer. Do you think concept trailers are still relevant? And what are a few ways you would market it? All right. So you've done, you've got a cool idea you want to turn into a feature or a series. Got it. You've done concept short films in the past, but this time you want to try doing a concept trailer. Got it. Our concept trailer is still relevant. Obviously, you see, I'm reading this for the first time, guys. I think that there are no rules to this. I think you do what you, what your highest level of creativity allows that also has a handshake with the budget you've got. So I would assume that doing a concept short is much more expensive than doing a concept trailer by virtue of the amount of page count or whatever the the show may be. I also don't know the specific show that you're talking about. So it's kind of hard to fully answer specifically because I don't know if this is a two-hander, you know, that people sitting at table all the time or is it procedural or is there a sci-fi element? Are there stunts? I don't know. So I would argue or I would offer rather that I would try and make either a short or a trailer that allows me to show the show the truest essence of the show at its at its highest level. So that's up to you to figure out to what you want to extract from the show to present to a potential buyer or potential, you know, collaborator, whether that's cast or producer or whatever, and then make the best deck or, or, or pitch book possible. So do I think concept trailers are still relevant? Yeah. I think that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of being redundant here, but it's really just up to you to figure out what best serves your project and what money you have to create it. There is obvious, there could always be a world where a short would be the ideal. Maybe you would want to make a short that introduces people to the world of the show, almost like, you know, 10 minutes before, (laughs) or, you know, something that brings you up to page one or to the title page of the project. So now folks could watch that short and understand the stakes and the characters and all of that. But if you don't have the ability to do that, you can find a way to be creative and making a trailer that does that too. So it all comes down to Carl making what you can make with your resources and being really creative about it. Your last question, what are a few ways you would market it? Look, I think, you know, if you make a short, a short can go to film festivals, right? That's marketing. You you might win a festival here and there. You might build an audience around it. And then that is marketing in its own in its own right. The other way is working behind the scenes to find collaborators to build a team. So then you can find yourself with something that's a little more marketable, you know, to present in different meetings. That said, you know, I I think my way would be to prove that there's an audience. So if you're asking my advice, which you are, (laughs) I would probably make a short film in all honesty. Because that would allow me to make something that people can watch, consider, and understand as a complete piece. And then I could have a conversation about where I'm going to take that idea. So there are no wrong answers. Do what's right for you. But that's what I would say, my brother. So best of luck on your project. And with that, let's hop into episode 42 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman, starring Valerie. Weiss. Roll 
Full speed. The interview. Take one. All right. So welcome to the show, Val. I have to say I do not have many PhD directors uh, on the pod. I think you are the first one, but um, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure to be here, Pete. It's really, really nice to talk to you. I've been a big fan since we first met a few years ago on during COVID of all of all times. During COVID, in the in 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 the height of COVID, like right. vintage vintage COVID, <laughs> vintage like, pre vaccine, pre vaccine. You know, wiping down your mail. Totally. And, um, I think it was for a scriptation Zoom. No. It was, it was. I think none of us knew if we'd ever get back to set. And we were afraid that if we did, we didn't want to touch paper. We didn't want to touch any of the same things. And so it was a great excuse to get people going digital and and helping the environment. So um, that was was really fun to do together with you and Michael Spiller. Yes, yes. And then to finally meet in person two weeks ago at the 75th DGA Awards, which are always a good time for directors out there who are in the DGA who don't attend. I suggest you drop that couple hundred bucks and go because it's good food, good times, good community. And I mean, it's not necessarily about that, but it's good networking too. And I I, I recommend, hopefully I'll see you next year. And for those who are watching too, I have four of these chairs for the video people because they give you a cool little Directors Guild awards dinner chair with your name on it as your seat marker. So I've got my chairs over there. Four is good. Four is good attendance. Good for you. And I actually, to be honest, I actually have three. My wife, Kelly, has four. (laughs) I I threw my first one away. I was like, I ain't keeping that. You did? I did. I will admit it. And then we went back and I was like, wait, how you got more than me? You're you're an actor. (laughs) There we are. But I... I want to come back to the to the scriptation and and paperless and and everything around that, but first, kind of get to like your journey. Where are you from, and and what was the first story that you heard that or saw that really made you say, storytelling can impact me or people? Wow, wow, that's that's a great question. So I'm from Philadelphia, and. It's interesting because when I think about this, you know, I don't know if it is something with a lot of impact, but I guess it is actually. I remember when I was five, my parents took me on a train to New York, to Broadway. And that was, I remember getting in line for tickets, tickets, tickets. And this is, this is before the cleaned up New York. Like this was, you know, some, some folks spitting at you. Uh-huh. <laughs> like raving lines for hours just to get a good price to be able to see something as extravagant as Broadway. And and we saw a chorus line mm. and I loved it. I loved it so much. And I remember the character named Val saying tits and ass. And my name is Val, as you know, you call me Val. And I apparently, according to my mom, left the theater, you know, singing tits and ass as this five-year-old, like dancing down Broadway. And right. I think I think that's what hooked me on entertainment. I mean, after that, I just loved movies like Fame and Flashdance. And I think that that grittier side of telling stories of going for your dreams mm-hmm. really is something that impacted me. And really has informed sort of a directorial style, a visual style for me, but also the kinds of stories I love to tell. I love to tell coming of age stories. I love to tell stories about 
scrappy people who mm-hmm. just through their own ingenuity and tenacity and chutzpah won't give up and aren't self-conscious about how they be- appear to others on the right. way to, to reaching their dreams. So I, I would say maybe that was the formative story that it impacted me. And so whether it was a bug or not, you know, it seems like maybe it wasn't a, a, a bug that spurred you t- toward filmmaking, but like, you know, what, when, when did you pick up a camera or when did you start putting it into like action or hobby form or, you know, passion form? Yeah. Well, shortly after that, so my journey, I came up through theater. So shortly after that, I remember getting really obsessed with theater and reading plays and going to, in Philadelphia, there's a big theater called Walnut, Walnut Street Theater and Tom Verica, who's from Philadelphia. I know mm. that he he used to go there for classes and, and maybe did a program there. So my parents saw how obsessed I was with, you know, acting. And so they would drive me downtown every Saturday and I'd take all the classes and and that's really what I loved doing. And I remember writing a little operetta with some classmates in like fifth or sixth grade called Singapore about a wizard. And we uh-huh. performed it for the whole school at night for the parents. And anyway, I I think I loved all the aspects, including directing, but didn't didn't really discover directing until college when I, I went to Princeton and still thought I wanted to be an actor and was acting. And then someone asked me if I wanted to direct a play, mm-hmm. a one-act play. And I was like, sure. And as soon as I got the chance to do that, I was like, yes, this, this is using both sides of my brain. And this, this is what I think I'm, I'm meant to do. But it still took a long time before I got into filmmaking after that. Right. Because my, my talented assistant, Jada, does a nice little profile on everybody. Um, so I have, I have like my, my, my FBI board over here. My, <laughs> what did Jada find? Well, you know, in, in the education section, I see an AB, molecular biology and theater and dance from Princeton, Princeton, and then a PhD, biophysics from Harvard University and a master's from Harvard Medical School and AFI. So like, what's going on while you're <laughs> like, you know, like looking through, I imagine you looking through like, you know, a microscope by day and then, you know, directing a one act play by night and thinking about the future of penicillin, you know, <laughs> in your dreams. Like what, what was, how are you doing all of these things? And, and when did you make a transition toward one versus the other? Yeah, it really was like, Every waking hour was either doing science or directing, and I loved it. It was it was really really fun. I I think you know I gravitated towards science in high school. I had an amazing biology teacher who taught science like it was the world's greatest story. And so the the same part of me that loved acting because I was so curious what makes people tick, why why do people behave like they do, and the specificity mm-hmm. and nuance that that gets to that behavior, which I was kind of obsessed with, um, then going to think about things on a molecular level of behavior and organisms interacting and why the universe is the way it is. I was like, oh my God, this is, this is amazing. I can think about everything from the tiniest thing to the largest thing. And so that fusion of art and science was 
very exciting to me as a thinker, as a student. And I didn't really know what would come of it, but I knew I didn't have to decide for a while. I knew I would go to college. I found, you know, a, a college where I could major in molecular biology. Can I, can I ask, how yeah. did you know you wouldn't have to decide for a while? Because there's there's another version of, of you or another person yeah. who, who says, I have to figure this out. You know, I have to know when I go get my undergraduate degree exactly what I'm doing. Like, what gave you the confidence to, or the understanding that there is a little bit of, that you do have that time? That's a really good question. And I don't know if I ever thought so consciously about it, but I think, I mean, I think I understood that whichever thing I ended up doing, I wanted, I wanted it to be deep, right? I wanted to think deeply about either one. So I knew there was an educational component and I was still probably thinking career-wise, it would more veer towards acting or directing. And so all the more reason to get educated. And so I figured college was the perfect time to experiment. I mean, literally all I did was theater classes and science classes. I mean, they filled mm -hmm. up my entire schedule. I mean, maybe I took one econ class and one religion class. And then I was directing. I directed five plays while I was at Princeton. And, and it just felt like it didn't feel like it was different than it might have been outside. Mm. And it was very safe and comfortable. And so... <laughs> The the first time I was aware, oh shit, I I got to decide is, you know, when I was facing graduation and I had decided that as much as I loved theater, what I really wanted to do was film and television. And right. there wasn't that much opportunity at Princeton, at the Ivies, at least back then. It's very academic and theoretical. So mm -hmm. we, you know, we had experimental film classes and experimental theater classes, but we didn't have a lot of practical production classes. So right. I knew that I, okay, if I'm going to start directing film and television, I needed to learn that. And, you know, I looked at the options. I could go to film school. I could go work for somebody or, you know, go be an independent filmmaker. And what I figured out is that you know, I wasn't 100% sure I was ready to make the switch or that I even wanted to because I love science. And I was like, you know what? If I go do a PhD at Harvard, maybe I'll have a very similarly successful experience where I'm deepening my understanding of something I love. And yeah. at the end of it, if I want to be a professor, great. But on the side, you know, I can take film classes with Hal Hartley and Rob Moss and really learn filmmaking the way I'd learned theater at Princeton. And so, and right. they pay, they pay you to do a PhD in science. So that's a, oh. that's a big deal. Well, yeah. Maybe I, I should stop this podcast <laughs> and go do something that pays. That sounds great. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it was also a very practical decision. And <laughs> so that felt like my path because I, I was very, I was thriving already in an academic environment. And so that's what I did. I, you know, you said looking through a microscope, I did x-ray crystallography, which is photography, 3D photography of molecules. And so I was getting to mm -hmm. explore all these great intellectual questions by day. And then I started a film program at Harvard at, at the Dudley House and was directing plays in the fall and learning filmmaking and running seminars in the spring. And that was, that was my film school. I think it's, what's interesting is that I think there's an interesting thing that I found in my undergraduate study, which was I kept taking courses that would inform who I thought I would be as a filmmaker. 
you know, and and taking advantage of of those liberal arts colleges where you have those things that you can kind of dabble in and expand your mind. Yeah, it's a very smart use of of time. And I had a funny thought. I was like, I wonder, do you have like circles of friends where you're like, oh yeah, I know that that's those are my medical buddies who are you know creating vaccines over here. And then you have like your film your film friends. It's like, oh yeah, that person just won an Emmy. Like, is that the yeah. Is that the result of this of this journey? Totally. They're so disparate. And even more so because of my six best friends in graduate school, I think only one is a professor. Mm-hmm. One's a plastic surgeon. One does consulting in Singapore or Thailand. Mm-hmm. Another one's a lawyer. So even they have branched out. And so there's all these folks with really interesting expertise. And so that's really fun. I always have someone to call yeah. to ask a question. <laughs> for something I'm directing. What's it like to do this? <laughs> right. So how do, how do you, so you you get the master's from Harvard. It sounds like AFI was the choice of like, now I've got, I've got this great sense of the world and who I am and, 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 and this education. And now I'm going to get a little more like surgical <laughs> in, in how I'm going to approach this. Like, was yeah. that? So that so at AFI, I did the directing workshop for women, which is an incredible program. It's a six weeks program that happens over the summer. You apply with a short film. And I had amazing people in my class. Sean Hader, who won the Oscar for CODA mm-hmm. last year. She was a classmate. Jennifer Getzinger is a big television director. Eight incredible women that we've formed really close friendships. So it was great because you basically took a short and you workshopped it for those six weeks. You know, you got feedback from screenwriting professors about your script and you had great cinematographers teach cinematography and costume design. And so it's basically accelerated film school with the purpose of making that particular production. So the feedback was all geared towards your script. And then you had tremendous resources, equipment from AFI. And at the time they gave you money to do it Mm -hmm. um, that you usually supplemented with money you raised. And it was, it was incredible because I'd made, I made a couple films in Boston before I graduated, but this was like my first professional filmmaking experience where I had all the departments filled and I knew what they did because again, I came at it from just like figuring it out as I went. So what did it take to gain entrance into that program? Yeah, so I think it's changed. So I don't want to mislead anyone. But at the time, it was a script, probably some essays, maybe some recommendations. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to show work back then. Now, I believe you do have to show show work that you've done. And I think you can even apply with a TV episode or a web series. Mm -hmm. It's changed a bunch. Mm -hmm. But it's an incredible program. I highly recommend it for anyone who is... I, I spoke to a cohort of that program a few. Well, it's funny you say a few years ago now, and it can be like six years because of the <laughs> of the of the three that have been lost from COVID. But yeah, it was it was a great program, and I, I saw several of those directors at the DGA event, which was awesome. Oh, that's great! Yeah, it yeah. really it really does give people a big boost. Yeah. So the last little interrogation of of your medical and entertainment (laughs) expertise. What have you found, if anything, that really positively transfers from your 
medicine experience or or medical, you know, from from that part of your life? Like, have yeah. you found something that really translates well into being a director? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's two, and I'll, I'll talk about process more than specifics. But you know, when you are a scientist at that level, you fail every day, right? Because if you are trying to do something and publish something noteworthy enough that has not been done before and that people will even care enough about to publish mm. and and be something that allows you to graduate. It's so hard and you don't know if it's going to work. It is truly an experiment. Mm-hmm. And so living your life that way, and you know, for me, it was in my 20s, I came straight out of college, that uncertainty, but passion for wanting to do it and wanting to succeed and what that does to you and your psychology really mirrors what it's like for me to be in the film industry, right? As you know, right. it's it's so up and down. So even so just in terms of getting work, it's that way. But even, you know, if you want to do something extraordinary, if you want to make a film or do a pilot or something that really is novel and testing boundaries, for instance, I'm doing this tone panel tomorrow at the or Saturday at the DGA with David O. Russell, Karin Kusama, Valerie Ferris, and Jonathan Dayton, who all make extraordinarily original movies and mix tone and mix genre, not mix, they mix genre to make a very cohesive tone. And so that kind of belief in yourself and your vision, I Mm -hmm. feel like a PhD is incredible preparation for because you have to distill what it is and keep your eye on the prize and not right. get lost on the way to making it. So let's say that's one major benefit of doing mm-hmm. it. And I kind of had a feeling, I would say to myself or the few people I told that I might want to be a director, if 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 I can get, if I can do a PhD, I can do anything. Like if I can get right. through this, everything is going to seem a little bit easier, I think. And then the other, <laughs> the other I, thing. I was going to say, it yeah. sounds like there's a, there's a, there's, there's, perhaps becomes a comfort with, I don't know. Yes. You, you know what I mean? And and I don't know while having experience and in, in, in data from which to refer, but we don't know what this particular test or experiment is going to reveal yeah. is, is take two. It's take three. It's take four. Like, you know, I don't know, but I, I think this is the way to get there. And it's trusting the, the, the instinct and trusting the question. Absolutely. You're so right. And I haven't even, I hadn't even thought about that from take one to take four, whatever it is, that little bit of anxiety is probably too strong a word, but Mm -hmm. you need faith in yourself as, Mm -hmm. you know, even if people want to move on that, you know, it's in there and you can get it. It's, It's just constant revisions, right? Of what, based on the data you just got, okay, now what's the next little variable I'm going to change? Right. And, and so that's so astute because it it really does help with that. And also, I thought you were going to say about the I don't know. It helps you, you know, I teach the first-time director class at the DGA. And one of the things we teach people is it's okay to say, I don't know, right? Mm-hmm. You have a, all these expert department heads. And if you don't know it right now, it doesn't mean you won't know after you think about it, right? And right. better to to be open about that, get the right answer or ask right. for help than do something that's not constructive, right. right? So exactly, being uncomfortable with uncertainty in pursuit of truth, I guess, yes. is mm-hmm. something that 
you really learn as a scientist. The second point is, you know, there's an inherent logic in storytelling and a great script, you know, things tracking. And I'm even talking about emotional truths tracking. Mm -hmm. And so for me, when I get a script, the very first thing I need to do is make sure it it tracks, right? That nothing bumps me uh, mm -hmm. logically or emotionally. And so I feel like I have a really good detector for that and also good communication skills around getting at what that truth is. And so being able to conquer that first allows me then to be really open and creative and think, okay, well, how do we, how do we want to, you know, tell this the, with the millions of tools out there for storytelling? How do we want right. to do that? And so again, that's a lot like doing a PhD, identifying a hypothesis and then, okay, am I going to use yeast 2 hybrid? Am I going to use electron microscopy? Like how am I now going to do this now right. that the logic is sound. Sorry, my dog is shaking his collar. That's no, that's a, that is a welcome sound around this podcast. I've I've got we've got a dog, and and you might hear a baby yelling. So, oh, I um, love that. Real, real life. Your baby's so um, cute. Thank you. So, I guess now let's get into the into the into the work. Right. I I see that there are you've got obviously you worked in TV and film. We've got films like. Dance by Design in 2003 and I Love You in 2004, where you were director, editor, producer, writer, and also dancer in the first one. So that's like 03, 04. And then you've got TV starting around 2009 with In the Mix, a TV movie and an American Girl Story, which was 2016. So talk about those years and then how that led to Chicago PD in 2017. Sure. Yeah, so those were super early years. Dance by Design was a collaborative movie I made with other grad students at Harvard mm -hmm. that six of us wrote together. It was, it was crazy. It was really fun. We made it for $5,000 and we got to show it at a film festival in London, which was really fun. And I love dance movies as, as we talked about with A Course Line. I just love song and dance. So yeah, and then I Love You was a short after I, because I literally didn't know what I was doing when I made Dance by Design. I got on set. And it was time to call action and all the things you call. And I, I literally had no idea what the order was. So I turned right. to my DP, who was much more experienced. And he's like, say, roll camera. Right. You say action. And, and at the end of the first take, I was like, do I say cut? <laughs> you say cut. I mean, it was, it was really learning on the job. So right. very early things. And then, yeah, but basically when I moved out to LA, I did the AFI directing workshop for women and made a short film called Transgressions. That's a mm -hmm. sci-fi project. And then so that, that led... Oh six. That was 06. Mm -hmm. And then I had written a movie while I was in grad school, grad school called Losing Control about a female scientist who wants proof that her boyfriend's the one. Mm -hmm. And that was my first independent feature. I raised money for it. And I love that. I like that you, when they, they say, write what you know, right? And, and that's the perfect example of taking, taking these worlds that you have, a, have an authority over and applying, you know, a little poetic license to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that was kind of, you know, my personal assignment to myself going to grad school, I knew enough to know that directors needed to control material. And so it's like, this is a perspective that only I am going to have. I can't imagine there's a lot of female mm -hmm. scientists directing or that 
want to look at science through a romantic comedy genre. And so I just took notes on every funny thing that happened and it became it became that movie, which was really fun to direct. And then that that was 2011. That was 2011. Yeah. Yeah. And then that led to my investors coming back to do another movie with me called A Light Beneath Their Feet, which was my first really dramatic project. It's It stars Taryn Manning as a mom with bipolar disorder. Mm. And her daughter, Madison, played by Madison Davenport, really wants to go away to college. But Taryn's character is like, well, I'm only on my meds so I can take care of you. So why would I stay on my meds if you're going to leave? And so mm. it's about that universal idea of, is it okay to leave someone you love? Which, mm. And I'm always trying to find, what's the universal? What's the theme that... Right. No matter what the specific world is, everybody can watch and feel something. Right. And so that that's 2015. That's four years after the first feature. I, I keep I keep interjecting with the years because I want people to understand and appreciate that, you know, this is a journey. And that first thing we mentioned was 2003, 12 years later, there's a feature. The whole time there's... You've got to live life. <laughs> yeah. You know but I, I, mean? I think it's worth saying, and I think it's good to track that, but those are the years the movies come out and are released. Mm-hmm. So they're being made a couple years, especially in the early days, made right. years before and edited for a long time as you right. figure it out. So, right. yeah. so what, what kept you going in this particular 12-year window that we're kind of talking about career-wise? Like what was... What was the North Star? Because I'm sure it wasn't like you were you were buying homes off of these projects or, yeah. you know, had a wall full of awards and accolades. Like what kept you with your foot on the gas? Mm-hmm. To, to stay committed. I mean, I knew having left my PhD, I knew there was no turning around, right? I, I knew I had that if I ever needed to fall back on, but I certainly was not intending to ever do that. And so having experienced another career, I can imagine a lot of people, you know, get into this business or come out to Hollywood and they give themselves five years. And if they're miserable five years and they're like, okay, well, I could have done this. I could have done this. Well, I knew exactly what it was like to do the other thing. Right. 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 So as long as I still had the passion and loved directing and making art more than I love science, that was my answer. Right. And so mm-hmm. It was just a matter of, you know, I was tutoring to pay the bills and and so was my husband. And, you know, it, it gets tricky, right? Because I had a baby before I made my first feature, which is something, you know, I was like, I got to make the feature first. I got to make the feature first, right? Right, right? And actually my biggest lesson was everything happened after I had a baby. I felt like it opened so much creativity. I, I think I was probably so blocked feeling like, oh, I got to get it done. I got to get it done instead of... Mm-hmm. Like you said, life happens. You're a better filmmaker. The more experiences, ups and downs you have, you bring that to your work. And in I, in in 17 months of being a father, I found myself more patient on set, more forgiving, and more more in search of collaborative methods because that's what you have to, you can't just tell a child what to do. And like, and that's, and, and having much like yourself too, having done so many parts of the job, sometimes I'm just like, cut that right there, put that there. Like, like, that's how you do it. Like, and then it's like, well, nobody wants to work with me like that. You you know what I mean? So like, how can we 
how can we converse and find a way for you to arrive at the same place with more agency in it and also create an environment where you'll continue to offer ideas that I might not have had so then we can both have an impact on what we're doing. And like, I don't know if, you know, being without a child would have fast-tracked that as much. I think that's such, that's so beautiful the way you stated it because you're right. It's it's not that it's a reluctant partner, a child, but mm-hmm. the tools don't work, right? <laughs> you can't just say, come on, come on, come on. And especially before they really speak, they don't even right. know what, what you want from them. And I, I think that's great, that spontaneity and improvisational aspect of being a director who can change, you know, their tactic quickly mm-hmm. is really important. Do you find something I found have, after having kids, I got so much more emotionally available and vulnerable. Mm. And so when I would direct actors, hmm. it it felt even more like I was going through what their characters were going through. And I felt like I had something really easy to access that I could almost transmit almost yeah. just energetically yeah. by being near them. And that that was pretty incredible. Do you find that? Oh, yeah. Or watching stuff. Like I was watching, we were watching The Last of Us. And I don't know if you've watched that. Yeah, the first few episodes. Mm -hmm. There's just an episode where there's like this thing with the kid. And and that shit just hits different. You you know what I mean? Like it just, you're just like, man, like, okay. I I know that that's true. That's drama. That's drama right there. And and there's a, there's a, an, an immediate understanding that you can have why people are doing things that's, that's heightened. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's good advice to have a kid if you want to be an artist. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. This is Millicent Shelton, and you're listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook is Pete Chapman's book from Michael Weasley Productions. What started in 1993 has been a marathon of persistence and creative pivots, transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school, to running a production company, to directing television commercials, and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him a start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration. This book is for any person targeting a successful career in the creative arts. Transition, a director's journey and motivational handbook from Michael Weezy Productions is available on Amazon and anywhere else you get your books. Don't forget about your local mom and pop shops, people. Shortly thereafter, because we're looking at 2015, at least for the release of A Light Beneath Their Feet, your first TV credit, correct me if I'm wrong, is Chicago PD in 2017, two years later. So how does that happen? Yeah, so actually my first, so I did an American Girl movie for Amazon that was kind of a hybrid between doing a feature and a and a pilot because it was its own thing. But if we're talking traditional episodic, Chicago Med was actually my first. I think Chicago I did. Med. Okay. I did two or three Chicago Meds before I did Chicago oh. PD. And I can't remember the orders because I did some scandal in there. That's on me. Don't blame Jim. No, 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 no. I, I will uh, not. I'm not reading this correctly. I see why. I see why Chicago Med is bold, but it, you had episodes that went subsequent years, so it's lower on the. Ah, there we go. There we go. go 
my bad. Okay, so how did so what is that two year period like going, you know, getting into the director's chair, A for the first time, B as a as a woman. I mean, these are these are both kind of monumental hurdles. You know, the job itself is so insular as far as hiring. I think that's probably the most all-encompassing adjective <laughs> that I could use, you know, and then just being not a white male adds a certain level of challenge as well, because people hire who they know and the folks in power tend to be that, you okay. know, so how did, how did you navigate that? Yeah, great questions. So, I mean, the reason I point out Chicago Med was my first was I think that made it a really nice transition for me. I remember when I was... Mm interviewing for the job. It was a half hour Zoom with Michael Waxman, who's amazing, a total mentor and, and hero of mine. He was the producing director and he, he was, you know, we had a great meeting and, I, and I've listened to so many of your amazing podcasts and you give such great advice. You tell people to watch previous episodes and I had identified my favorites from season one of that show. It was a season two, a, an interview for an episode season two. And I asked him what were, what were his and they were the same as mine so I could speak mm-hmm. in depth about them and very articulate. So we had this great, great meeting. And then at the end, he looks at my resume under like special skills. <laughs> and it's like master's in medical sciences from Harvard Med. He's like, oh, come on. He's like, you're overqualified. You're hired. And so, right. I mean, I don't know. If, I don't think I got hired on the spot, but it was a great interview. And then I shadowed Michael Lehman, who's a great director. And I shadowed him on True Blood and, you know, asked him to put in a call, which he did. And so it, it was just amazing to get that first episode because really, I mean, as I mentioned, the women that I did the AFI directing workshop for women with, so few of them had broken in yet. And yet, now so many of them are and they're, right. they're so talented. So it shows you there was some kind of systemic bias because yes. they're killing it. They are yes. killing it. I mean, Sean won an Oscar. It's, it's yeah. so, yeah. It's, yeah. So it's, it's, it really sheds a light on why the change has been so critical and important. So anyway, yeah, it was really thrilling to get get that first episode. And then and doing the job was great. I mean, Michael was a great producing director. He he was very supportive of everything I wanted to do, supportive of any script, you know, mm. questions I had. And set, right. he set me up for success that way in terms right. of, you know, I think you probably talk about this. There's the nuts and bolts of directing, but a huge part of success in TV directing are the, the politics of it, right? And how you communicate and when you interact with a showrunner and how. And so right. he, w- he was a, a great guide in right. that respect. So what yeah. was what was what was surprising to you in the sense of like, oh, I did not anticipate this would be a part of my job as an episodic television director. And then what did you find? Oh, yet again, I have, you know, this skill set that works well in this profession. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I have to think about that. Yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm not exactly sure what the answer to, I was surprised this would be part of it. I will say I, I'm coming around to what I think it might be, but I think it really helped to have been an independent filmmaker and producer. Because when you do that, you deal with everything, right? You deal with contracts, you deal with casting, right. you, you, right. you understand editing, you understand all of it. Right. So I think with TV, the challenge is, okay, I'm only supposed to weigh in on a subset 
of all those things I normally do. So that can be a little bit of the challenge. But then show to show, there's sort of gray areas, right? Like some mm-hmm. shows, the cast and the showrunner, they're very tight. And so so their prep for their characters through a season arc or for an episode is is really well handled, right? right. And so you're coming in and you know, maybe you have a conversation before you shoot, but you're you're like ready to go. And then other shows that really is not being managed, you know, by anyone but the director, or maybe the producing director. Right. And so understanding, okay, it's okay to get in early on this in prep and be discussing this with an actor, which I think is great when you have yeah. that opportunity for collaboration. I, I one thing I miss about COVID. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you never thought you'd say that phrase, right? Is you know, uh, and and I I I I I want to be deliberate about how I say this because I don't mean it in a in the sense of like it's bad when it's the other way. But I remember doing like my block of episodes for you, and I just thought about that because season four, part two, is now streaming, which is great. Um, but it was, it was like, we did all the prep. We had all the meetings. Sarah Gamble's amazing. Neil Reynolds is amazing. And like, because of COVID at the time, there were no writers on set. So for 20 days of shooting, like I was village and they prepared me very well because of how specific they were in the prep, but they were also very, very empowering in saying like, you know, we're looking for you to interpret also. And it just, it meant that like the level of engagement that I had was as high as it would be on my own thing. Yeah. Because there's no, I can't, like if we're moving on, I got to feel like it's time to move on. Like if yeah. we don't have it, like I can't, there, there no one's going to say it's fine. Like I have to be fine with it. And I think that that's, you know, that's an amazing, that's an amazing kind of place to be as far as creation, but just an aside. No, absolutely. Because it's, I mean, I think that's the the challenge of being a television director versus a feature director in that you are the leader, right? Everyone's looking to you. Do you want this? Do you want that? Are we going again? Uh, And yet you are in service of a showrunner's vision. And so developing that skill set. I liken it to if you've ever done yoga, when you're doing mountain pose or tadasana, you have your feet firmly planted on the ground, but you're also mm-hmm. supposed to reach for the sky. And it's like they're they're counter maneuvers, right? And so getting comfortable with that that dichotomy in in the role you're playing, you know, can can take a minute, but yeah. it's important. But it's the job. And it's it, the job. It, it's the reason the the you know, the the folks who do work the most. And I've seen this as a as a PD, you know, for a reasonable doubt. Like there's like a certain kind of, I mean, you know, so I, I, I get I, some words just sound that they're they're too easily selected and they have connotations, but I use it like they like the best directors almost feel like, you know, politicians, mm-hmm. diplomats, you know what I mean? Because diplomats. Mm-hmm. they they know how to they they know you know they know what the bullshit is going to be and they accept it and find a way to navigate it with like a plum and yeah. with, and and panache you know and like and that's kind of like the part of it that no one 
tells you is no the job. No one tells you. No one tells you. And and you're so right, Pete. And I, I, I you know, I, I don't know if you've done an episode on that, but that would be great. I know you've had Dan Adius on and his book, mm-hmm. I think is so great because it, it goes into that more than I've seen any other books. Mm-hmm. And I love like Mary Lou Belli and Bethany Rooney's book, Directors Tell Their Story is amazing. I use it all the time and it's great especially when you're you're entering television directing but you know after you've done a few episodes it's so helpful to see what Dan has had to navigate and yeah. the politician side of that uh that, yeah. that, that gets overlooked often it, in the it's the, important in the education <laughs> so so speaking of the politician side you know the first job does not be necessarily beget the second job so how do you how do you end up getting these multiple Chicago Med episodes? I see three here. I see three suits. Like, what was the journey like in the beginning as you began to get more shows and also get invited back? Yeah. So I had had a general meeting with the producers on Suits before I booked Chicago Med, and and it was a great meeting. And Silver Tree was the producing director. Who I didn't know, but they were like, "You got to meet Silver Tree." And so, Me. as soon as I booked Chicago Med, I reached out to Gene Klein at Suits, and I was like, "Hey, I just I just booked my first episode." He's like, "Well, we gotta we gotta get you in here before your dance cards filled." So that was amazing because I had two episodes booked before I did my first episode of television, which was such a relief because, as you yeah. know, it's it's so hard to get that second one for so right. many people and. And it was great. And I, I was doing the the DGA. It still has this program. It's the Directing DDI. What does it stand for? Oh, direct, di- direct Diversity Initiative? Directors, di- diversity. De- de- Directors Development Initiative, maybe? Maybe or that's di- what it is. Yes, that might yeah. be what it is. But they have a mentorship program. And I, I did the first year of that as a mentee. And it was amazing because I had these episodes booked, but I hadn't done them yet. And then... Who was took- your mentor? I had Roxanne Dawson or still have, I guess she'll always be a mentor, which was yeah. so perfect. She's she's so incredible and what an admirable career and so generous with her her time. And it was it was an incredible program. I highly recommend it. But that was that was really helpful because suddenly I was working, but and and your mentor is not it's not just your mentor, but like Alan Arkish was there and he was so open to talking to me. And right. you meet all these mentors that you can go to with different questions. So it's really nice to have, you talked about, I forget what word you used about being a director. It's so solitary or singular. Like you're the only director on set, right? Right. And so having a community that you're coming up with is, it's one of the best things about doing a program like that is being able to call folks and say, you know, you and I have taught, I've called you for advice. Like, hey, how do you handle it when this happens? Or what's your experience mm-hmm. with this company? And it, it's it's a big help. Yeah, yeah, very true. It's And it's like, a, I mean, obviously there are people in your department, but it's kind of like a department of one. Yeah, you know? exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, just like the script supervisor. That's why you bond so well with the script <laughs> supervisor. <laughs> so since then it's been the resident the rookie for the people why women kill bull prodigal son outer banks what has what has that journey been like and and kind of how have those jobs come to come to your come to your eye 
I was yeah. gonna say I was gonna say land at your feet, but you know, <laughs> come to your eyes. It's all good. Yeah. So I, I was, you know, lucky enough to get asked back to Chicago Med two more times, the suits, and then it just got really busy really fast. Like I was doing seven, seven or eight episodes a year for the first few years, which was incredible. I mean, literally yeah. going show to show, barely having time to do an edit in between, but always making time. And then, and it was that way pretty much constantly for three years. I'd have to look at the resume to see, but then I got a movie. So I was about to go back to the resident and bowl, I think, again. And I got a call from a producer of a movie that I had met on. Gosh, I originally met on it maybe 10 months before. And it was a Netflix movie. And so I, you know, I met with the, pro the producer chose me and then we went into Netflix and they met lots of people. And so it literally, not that it came out of nowhere because I had met on it, but it was so much later than when we originally met. Right. So then I had to rearrange my schedule and shift to making that movie. So yeah, so I, that, I did that movie. Basically, my the COVID year was that movie. Is that mixtape? Yeah, that's mixtape. Mm -hmm. and, and was that the one you worked on with Robin and Tim that I worked with on Dead Boy Detectives, the first yes. ACAM operator mm -hmm. and first AC? Yeah, okay. they're amazing. Amazing. Yeah, we had such a you. great department. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Oh, we had such a great crew and uh, so fun to work in in Vancouver and uh, crews are just so good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was telling, an AD asked me that yesterday. I actually went to a session on the volume. Oh. ILM had a presentation and it's, have you have you shot on that? I have, yeah. And is it, was it recorded? I would love to, because uh, I'm going to be doing that again soon. Yeah, no, it, it wasn't. It was like, it was at the Manhattan Beach Studios mm -hmm. and they used assets from different shows, you know, that have been, that have shot there or used the, I don't even know what the word is, process. <laughs> uh -huh. And I, it was, it was eye-opening and amazing to me. That's um, great. It's such a great technology because I used it on Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And man, it's just, it's it's so cool because it's, you're only limited by your creativity. You can do anything in there, but you also move so fast because no. you're not out in the elements. It's just. Right. Yeah. And for and for people listening, like the, the volume is basically like the way I, I've been explaining it to people is like, take, take a take a cheesecake <laughs> or, or any cake and cut it in half and empty out the middle. And imagine you're looking into that emptied out cake and it's all screens except on the, on the bottom of the cake. So it's screens around that semicircle and it's a screen on top and it's pre-acquired video assets that are rendering in real time that just exist as the background. And you can, if you want to shoot magic hour, once you have those assets, you can shoot magic hour for 12 hours straight, yeah. <laughs> you know, dream. on, on the, on the volume. I, this brings up something interesting. Though. I, was it tough for you to get that Star Trek strange new worlds job considering you had not shot on the volume already because that's that that was that's something that I've been hearing from folks like mm -hmm. getting that that work in that space it's just another as as the industry works and understandably to some degree 
it's just another thing like, oh, well, you haven't done comedy. You're a drama person, so we're not going to let you get this episode or you right. haven't done the volume. So ah, we're going to go with the people who have. Like, was it a challenge to to book that? Yeah. And and that thinking that you're talking about, it's, oh, man, it's so silly and frustrating because, I mean, we figured out this much, right? You know, right. it's just one more thing to to learn and, and tackle like everything else we do. So it came to me in an interesting way. So there's a DP that I love named Benji Bakshi. And this is so unusual. We have now worked together three times in television mm -hmm. on three different shows. Right. I mean, That's that never happens. Yeah. yeah. We met on The Rookie and then we did Prodigal Son. Just coincidentally, I met on it and then he did my episode. And then he he was working on Star Trek Strange New Worlds and he's like, wow, you should do this show. We got to work together again. So he recommended me to the producing director. Mm. And then we met and then I went into the production company and met with those guys. But it was never about needing the technology. I mean, that was never the conversation. I think also because I'm a scientist, I don't know that right. that, that, that that can people have that kind of concern so much right. because right. I've had to be so technical so much of my life. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, but it was it was it was so much fun to work on. Let me ask you this: When you did that seminar at Manhattan Beach, did you see it being used for anything more commonplace? Because after oh, I yeah. used it, yeah, oh yeah, like, this should be used for boats. This should be used for everything that's hard. They showed it. I mean, they showed something from the Batman, you know, like, so when they did that, they, they, they stressed the importance of starting from a photo real place. And so they showed how they went and found some like, you know, abandoned town and got a lot of all the photos that they needed. And they built this world around something that would serve as a real canvas upon which to digitize, you know? Then they showed us, you know, how you could, you know, shoot just in a mountain vista. And if you wanted to do a French over, you know, or a French reverse, you could just, instead of spinning the people around, you could just 180 the whole background. They did driving shots. They, I think this, sh this show, I don't remember the, the title of it, but it had, well, let me not try and misremember, but they, they went to the desert to shoot you know, the three or four car shots that they needed. And then the rest were on the volume. But what was interesting, there was a remake of a, of a Christmas movie with Tim Allen that was like maybe 20 years in the remaking. <laughs> and it was more effective to, to do the volume than to go and try and rebuild all those sets. Well, it's a period. Piece. You know, yeah. yeah. So it was, it's, they were very practical. It, it's not always, it's not, only a, a Star Wars-y thing, it might be the best way to do a scene on the beach, yep. you know, and if your budget can absorb it. Yeah, that's that's great. That's what I was thinking. I met on a show to be a producing director and a lot of the show took place on a on a cruise ship. And I was like, this is the perfect, this is the perfect vehicle for that because you can mm -hmm. change what port you're going into. You can build the deck and yeah. Change the deck. And it's just, it seemed like a no brainer for yeah. a certain style. I mean, it, it sort of depends on the, the look of the show, but yeah. if it's the, right, it can be great. The wildest thing that, that really had me like raising all of my eyebrows was for whatever Star Wars show they were showing us assets from, there were stormtroopers in the deep background and they took, you know, the mask off at a certain point. 
and revealed that we were in Manhattan Beach and the stormtroopers were two guys in San Francisco at the same time wearing tracking suits. They weren't even in the stormtrooper uniforms and they were holding fake guns and they would turn it on and off. And we were watching them in the background for the 45 minutes that we had been there. Wow. So it's like instant compositing from a distance. Is that? It's bananas. Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, that's that, that right there. I was like, that, that's just crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I love it and can't, can't wait to do more. I think, I think it's a great tool. So I have a question and, and I, and I, hopefully it's not a, a weird question, but I think that I often think about like we travel through these different programs, like folks like you and I, and with a lot of other folks, and we're all, we've all got our eye on on a similar prize, right? Being self-reflective, what is it that you think you were able to do well or that, you know, distinguished you from your counterparts that helped you get to where you are now? Because everybody had the same information. Everybody, you know, had the same access. You know, everybody could go watch the same things and email the same people. Like, what would you say in your, is your scientific breakdown of, of Val in, yeah. in, in getting here? God, you asked the best questions, Pete. I could just <laughs> talk to you all day long because, you know, as, as long as we've been doing this and as many interviews as we've done, you're asking things nobody's asked, but they're so poignant and they really think about yourself in a, a really constructive way. So thank you. Thank you. You know, it's interesting. I wonder, I was describing early on about the kind of stories I want to tell about characters who really have a dream. They know what they want and they go after it unselfconsciously, but also unpretentiously. I mean, like I love Rushmore, Jason Schwartzman's (laughs) character. He has no idea how he seems to the outside world. I mean, he's posing, he's in every yearbook, you know, photo, but he's such a dilettante, you know, he's right. not necessarily good at anything except probably directing that play. And, you know, book smart, Beanie Feldman, that's her name, right? The mm-hmm. main character, like the way she just, she sees what she wants and she goes after it. She learns her lesson way later, but uh-huh. she, she never stops. Right. And I mean, you know, I, I might be as dorky as them. I mean, I was a scientist, it's totally possible. I don't know what other people see, but I think that I have a passion and probably a lack of self-consciousness about just wanting to do it. Like, I just, I just love it. And, you know, thinking about, okay, well, how can I do it? Like, what do I have that makes me a fit for this? Or who do I know that can help me realize this? And not, not an opportunist, opportunistic way, but like, I feel like I really have something to give. and you know, honing that intuition, like there's certain things like certain jobs or scripts that I've written or, or visions I've had for how I direct something that when I come up with them, I'm like, oh, that in my gut, I know that's right. And whenever I listen to that, even if it's harder to get to it, because it Mm -hmm. might be more ambitious, but Mm -hmm. patient and keep working at it, it's always a home run. And whereas when I make the decisions where it's like, oh, this is offered to me. This is an easy get, but it's not necessarily where my passion lies. 
that's never as fulfilling or or sometimes not even as successful as doing the right. other. So now that I've done 30 episodes and I look at what I've done, I'm trying to be a lot more intentional and conscious about really doing the things that that make my gut light up. And right. this, this is what you should do. And it requires more patience and more maturity, but I, that's that's where I want to invest. So I don't know if that answers your question about well, it, setting it, you apart, but it's, I it's think kind it of sounds, a guidepost, right? It, it's, it, I think it answers. I, I think it sounds like, you know, there is a comfort in who you are. There's a, a genuineness about what you're presenting. Mm-hmm. And there is a, there's no desperation, Mm. you know, I think that that, I think that can always be a, I mean, I I don't care what field you're talking about, desperation, you know, turns people off. And even if you are, if you can find a way to kind of govern it, put it down somewhere. And, and, you know, it's like when people say, act like you've been here before, you know, but yeah, it's a, it's, I, I, I asked that question because I I often, you know, I I step out of every meeting wondering like, man, did I, did I, could I, did I, did I present this, the best self in all of the moments that were planned and that revealed themselves. So then I can make sure if it happens again, you know, something that was unplanned. Well, now I can plan for it. But like, I feel like you have to really be that, you know, analytical, you know, into what you do in order to change outcomes. Mm-hmm. And and I, I feel like a lot of, you know, the challenge for our counterparts is often, you know, what they want to do for reasons that are without data, you know what I mean? Get yeah. clouded by, like, like gets in the way of what they think they, there's like this unknown assumption that's getting in the way of what they should be doing to get what they want. That's, I guess that's what I'm trying to say because like, you know, I, I was talking to somebody the other day and they were like, oh, well, you know, they do this show and I'm not really a fan of that show. I'm like, when you got your first meetings, you got to act like you want to do every fucking yeah, show. Yeah, you can find right? something yeah. in anything that you love, right? Yeah, and and the things that you, you know, you have to get... It, 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 I think it took 10 episodes before I, I really started refining like, okay, here is my episodic directing process. You know what I mean? And like, in a world where you were fortunate enough, fortunate enough to get all the shows you desired... You know, let's just say, and I and I hate to get into the hierarchies, but like, let's just say you are dying to only do streaming cable or premium cable, right? Not streaming, but premium cable. And every show, you get those 10 shows. And then after 10, now you're like, okay, now I got my process. Imagine if you had done 15 other shows before you got those 10. And now those 10 would be a more accurate reflection of your abilities, mm. you know, versus like hopping right in and and not knowing and not learning and not refining and you know I don't know I I can I can babble about this stuff forever but I feel like that's breaking down this industry and this job as a director into like you know scientific units is probably very helpful in knowing that it's there are all these things that go into the into the test tube that make make it smoke you know I agree a hundred percent. And I love that you have this natural 
analysis that happens after you execute, I think that's that's probably so helpful to be able to, and I imagine when you go into a meeting, you're your authentic, charming, incredible self that you always are, that I've experienced. And then to then be able to step out of yourself and say, okay, how did that go? And so not in a, in a prescribed way or a false way, but literally just to like look at your authentic self. Or I imagine that is such a great tool and probably this podcast and writing the book too has helped you refine that. Because like you said, it's constant learning. I mean, I agree with you. I wouldn't, I'm so grateful for all the work I've done, but that I had a really strong base of broadcast shows at the beginning of my career where I got to work fast and learn very specific skills. And, you know, sadly, you hear stories about people who are getting their first job on really Mm -hmm. big premium shows and and not delivering. And it doesn't make anyone look good because, you know, the the instinct to hire more people who haven't had a shot is a great one, yeah. but I st- think it's really important not to rush that, right? Um, I can. I mean, I just, I just did a show where, like, day one of prep, I, I'm presented with the VFX budget that is eight hundred thousand dollars over where they would like it to be. Wow! Wow! So, so now I'm like, I just read this shit. You, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and they're, and they're like, okay, well, how many shots of that are you going to do? Right. Right. You just showed up. Like you probably just got the script two hours ago too. Four shots. Yeah. (laughs) That seems like a safe number. Let me say four and I'll back into it later. (laughs) You guys have seven. I bet I could do it in four. (laughs) That that saves 32,000. All right. What else? (laughs) And, and yeah, like to, and to keep your cool through those meetings and also to like, know like, like there were like, like I have a system of, of how I devote my time. Mm-hmm. during prep and it changes based off of how long I've had a script but like my system had to change because I was like tomorrow's meeting I think it's going to be a lot about this thing so this goes in the back burn- on the back burner and I'm looking at this budget as if it's my money you know because I and that means I got to look at only these eight scenes so I can really think about what it's going to be and if they ask about the other 48 scenes guess what? I don't have answers for you. And, and, and then, like you said, being comfortable with, I don't know, like getting comfortable with, I don't know, in search of like, you know, there's a process. I'm not going to put the pressure on myself to know everything, you know, but in the beginning you do, you're like, oh shit, I can't look like, I don't know anything. Right. They're going to, they're going to be like, we never should have hired this. I don't know her. Right. But it's saying I don't know about the right things. And and you're so smart to tackle the high priority, right? Because once you get that out of the way and they're not stressing about the budget because that has to be sorted so they can do the rest, make decisions for not just the rest of your episode, but subsequent episodes if there are any. I think you did the finale, so it may not have applied. But even saving money for next season or or looking good. And so I think that's something that newer episodic directors may not understand is that you know, helping, being a real teammate with making sure things are working on the budget side of things is a a huge relief, right? Right. For for the production team. And, you know, I find one of the fast thinking on your feet that's required of us often is with locations. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you'll do either be sitting in the location review meeting where you're just looking at pictures or they'll be taking you. And locations can be so stressful. They can be 
hard to get or they just don't exist. Like you need a small town jail, but you're shooting in a big city (laughs) and that doesn't exist. And there's something in someone's head that it's supposed to be. And so being able to very quickly marry two different locations that you've seen Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. think about how far away they are from each other and what day you're going to be able to do them and making sure and the VFX, okay, if we VFX this fence over here, then it'll feel like a jail, even though it's not a jail. And like, you know, so and many knowing times. and knowing that you need to do that thought seconds <laughs> decision matrix in even the worst location that they take you to. Absolutely. Like you have to say, okay, like this sucks, but yeah, if what if this could work if we did these things because the script requires these things, and then folks are like, okay, Val's thinking about it. Right. You know, she's aware of why this doesn't work. It's not for superfluous reasons, you know, and she's also not, no, and getting back yeah. in the van, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and that mentality of we're all in this together, because really we are in that episode. It's everybody doing their best to meet certain creative goals together. Yeah. And there's never an ideal situation. There's never enough money or time or an actor got COVID. And so now we need to readjust. There's always something that's going to make it out of the ordinary. Right. I just, I have one little anecdote that I, that came to my mind when thinking about like the little, the little Monday morning quarterbacking after a conversation or a meeting. And I remember I was doing Blackish and I never had Wanda Sykes in an episode and I was really excited about it. And we were chatting over by her chair and she asked me about multicam stuff. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm not really a big multicam guy, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then she went, you know, maybe to go get on set or whatever. And I walked back to my chair and I was like, she has a multicam show. (laughs) You know what I mean? I was like, she's got a multicam show on Netflix. And I'm normally smarter than that. You know what I mean? I just mm-hmm. didn't, I didn't put the, I just did, I don't know. I just went to a gut reaction of like, you know, not really my thing, but I actually would love to, to, to do it. You know what I mean? And it was just like, wow, that was, I, I made him, I made a mark in my memory of like misstep. Right. You know, and, and it doesn't matter that it was conversational at the chair, like, because everything is something that gets etched into the memory and the database of like the people you meet. Everything counts. Everything counts. So how did you, how did you handle it? Did you revisit it or did you give no, yourself a free pass? And I, I, I was like, that's just because, because, because then it, to revisit it, I feel like I'd be making an assumption that mm-hmm. that's what she was getting toward. But I do think that's what she may have been getting toward. To see if you wanted to direct to her To see show. if maybe I, yeah. Like, yeah. it's like we're on our day two of work and she's got no qualms and maybe it's a it's a little poke to see if, wow. you know. Well, maybe so. she'll hear this and know that you're you're <laughs> dying to do her multicam show. <laughs> exactly. And I, you got you to gotta have a podcast to make up for it. <laughs> so let's talk about what we kind of started talking about, which is sustainability. And I'd love to hear how you got involved with scriptation, which I, I praise all the time, but also like why it's important to the industry and and the future and whatever else you want to add. Yeah. So before, right around when I was getting into TV directing, I was really hungry for a tool that could put all the different 
things together in one spot. I wanted to be able to look at a script and read it like a movie. So I wanted an easy way to put pictures in there, music in there, like everything in a way that I could put it in once and not have to be changing every time we got revisions. And I remember emailing a bunch of uh, working directors, what do you use? What do you use? And, and really nobody had anything. This is, this is like six, seven years ago. And then I did Scandal and everybody on that show uses scriptation. And I was like, what is, what is that? Hold on, let me, let me see this. And right. so I remember Darby Stanfield, she, she was so kind. She taught me how to use it. She was actually shadowing me because she was going to do the next episode. And so I was like, teach me scriptation and I'll teach uh-huh. you directing. And so I learned it. It's really easy to learn. You know, we've, we've talked about this with, with in our webinars, but it was, it was a game changer, not just because it was so much better for the environment. I mean, shows waste millions of pieces of paper yeah. every season. It's, it's insane. But, you know, to be able to have those tools and like I said, I'll put music in a scene and I'll play it for an actor. I'll be like, this is... This is the rhythm I'm going for. I, this might even be in the episode. I've cleared it with a music supervisor. Right, or right, this right. is how you pronounce this French word. I can't pronounce it, but I recorded right. a French person saying it for you. But like so many storyboards and shot lists all right in there. So I love it. But I also use it from a sustainability perspective. As soon as I get hired on a show, I'll email the AD and, and production office and say I'm paperless. So please, PDFs only. I don't need a lunch menu in the van or a scout list of where we're going. Please, just everything PDF. And uh, and I'm going to start doing that because I I normally just turn it down, Mm. but they have still printed it out for me. Exactly. You have to get ahead of it. You have to get ahead of it. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things I love being involved in the DGA and one of the things that has been so fun is being on the Sustainable Future Committee. And we just had a great webinar called paperless and plastic free and other habits to reduce to reduce and set. And Kat Coiro directed Marry Me and the She-Hulk pilot. She was on it and Kati Johnston from Bull in East New York is an incredible sustainable producer. She spoke. So there's lots of great, great info on there. Yeah. Is everyone having to purchase it individually or are like studios, networks, companies like buying it and and being able to like share it with their employees? Yeah, there's a license and, you know, thankfully more and more shows are getting on board in studios. Now studios have sustainability people so they can purchase a license so that everybody on the crew can have it for free. Right. So if that's something that people request, yeah, sure, people can make it happen. It's been, it's so incredible as an app. And I'll just say even for, for me, for personal reasons, like I, I, every episode people are like, wait, you're. I know you. <laughs> I know they recognize you. I get that too. People yeah, like, oh, they, they're like, wait. And the last show I, I did, I had a script supervisor who I came in for the last two days. She was like, I'm, I'm here. I'm like, I, cause, and I'm where we have the mask on and everything. She's like, I know your voice. And I was like, oh, did you, is it scriptation? She's like, that's what it is. I was like, that is hilarious. So thank you for introducing me to more people. You're as welcome. well as well, making my process, you know, seamless. Well, I have to thank you. You mentioned the mask and COVID, something that, and I wear many hats. Oh, it's not a visual <laughs> except on YouTube, but this great hat that I purchased uh, that. from you that says director, this baseball hat. I love it. I've worn it all through COVID because 
and I'll continue to uh, wear because uh-huh, uh-huh. people can't find you with a mask and it saves so much time on set to like know, okay, there's the director. That's I'm so go funny. Find I never, I never thought about it in that way, but that is, that is true. Yeah. Hey, I have one question about it. And do you know if, if they're talking, thinking about it or Steve's working on being able to put video into, into scriptation? I have been asking for years. That was the first thing. I was like, what if we could play a sizzle reel or a sequence yeah. from something? I mean, it's a good question. I haven't asked in a while, but yeah. I think everyone is listening to this podcast should email <laughs> Steve Vitolo and say, we need this. <laughs> yeah, because I, I end up doing, I end up having to, this is my own terminology, but I end up kind of having to bootleg my own stuff because like, like if like in, in, in a show, if there's like something that's effects driven, like I might just take a quick video of, of, the, uh, of the daily, you yeah. know, and have it for eye lines, you know what I mean? And then if I could just pop it into the page, it would be great. I mean, I can, I can still get a screen grab and put a photo in, which is awesome, but Sometimes like watching that video is like a nice little huddle moment for people to kind of, you know, get ready to go do it. Yeah, I'm with you. I would love that. It'd be so useful. Well, let's see. We're, we're turning, we're rounding third here. I have a couple kind of lightning round questions, I suppose. Is there anything or what rather would you tell your younger self before... And I, I, you have so many, you have such an interesting journey that I'm going to, I'm going to pick a point in the journey for you to maybe talk to your younger self. Is there anything you would tell your younger self in high school before pursuing this, the, the, the medical pursuit, you know, what would you tell that version of yourself? Is there anything you would tell them like that would change the educational pursuit or do it just like you did? Or like, what might that be? Yeah, great. Again, great questions. I would probably tell that younger self to trust that the skill sets, the attributes that I was aware I had were enough to be successful in this very unpredictable career. And that even if they weren't, it would be better to die trying basically mm-hmm. then then doubt along the way right awesome do you do you have what three traits do you think are important to make it in this industry as a director okay i'd say vision chutzpah and thick skin and I know Melissa Shelton, I know she said thick skin. And uh-huh. it's good to hear someone else say that because you pretty much have to stop listening after no. I mean, sometimes it's useful for analysis, mm-hmm. but if it's something you really want and you know you can get there, then you need to keep going and not let that be louder than your inner voice. Well, since we're since we're giving context, how would you how would you contextualize the the importance of chutzpah? Well, I think it's you know it's kind of wrapped up in tenacity. I was I was debating between tenacity and chutzpah. I uh-huh. think chutzpah is tenacity with a solution. Mm. So it's not enough, and this maybe goes back to what you were saying about the people who've succeeded versus maybe a cohort who hasn't. 
it's absolutely important to hold on to the goal and be heading right towards the target as fast as you can. But with chutzpah, you can be looking around and finding the resources and what you bring to get there and showing why you, right? Because at the end of the day, why you and not somebody else? So having a good handle on that, I think is important. And then vision? So, I mean, I don't know why everybody gets into this, but I know I got into this because I have something to say and a particular way I want to say it. And as we talked about early on in your career, you know, you want to just take the job, right? You want to just work. But it's really important, even in those jobs, but especially later when you can be more choosy or you have more autonomy in doing features or pilots to have a vision and a really strong point of view. I think when you play it safe or you're too conventional, then the why you falls away. And then it it could be anybody, right? And so whether you're working or not, constantly developing that vision through journaling or photography or conversation or knowing why you like what you like will only make you a better filmmaker when you get the opportunities that, that you really want. That's amazing. Is there anything you want to add that I have not found a way to ask you? Hmm. I mean, you were very thorough. This was a great interview. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think just at the end of the day, you know, if, if you stick to it and you're successful, it's still really important to connect to your own humanity because that's what will keep you from running out of gas. You know, it's, it's a long hours, hard job, and you need renewal from time to time to keep telling fresh stories. And so I think really continuing to develop your personal life, your hobbies, your interests is, is all what flows into that. So I would highly recommend filmmakers do that. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining the podcast. What can people look out for next from you? That's a good question. I am pitching some TV shows right now. So hopefully it'll it'll be something that I'm uh, creating. And yeah, I just had Outer Banks season three just came out. Yeah. And I think that's all I have in the pipeline until I go on to my next job. Awesome. Well, thank you for spending a little time with us on the podcast. It's been very much appreciated. Thanks, Pete. Likewise. All right. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. All right, that's episode 42 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. I want to thank Valerie Weiss for joining us again and hope you all enjoyed that interview. And in the meantime, get your calendars ready for next week. We will have the illustrious editor of film and TV, 
Shannon Baker Davis. That will be our second editor conversation. So enjoy. I hope you will join us for that. And as always, stay safe, spread love, and keep creating.